Thank you, Pastor Boyd. I remember the very first time I told my husband, my now husband, that I was in love with him. We had been dating for a few months and growing up, I had always um, watched or read these fairy tales and love stories and movies. And when the characters told each other that they loved each other, it always seemed like the clouds parted, the rain stopped, um, birds started cooing, butterflies started landing, candy started coming out of the sky. It just always looked like this beautiful, amazing, exhilarating, magical moment. And so this moment when I fully knew that I was in love with my husband, and this moment when I knew it was time to say it, I was terrified. I started trembling and my, um, my husband, my now husband and I were at the time, we were walking along the Hudson River and he was like, are you okay? Do you need me to take you home? Are you sick? And I'm like, no, no, I'm fine. Just give me a few minutes. And he's like, okay. And I just, I, I could not get the words out of my mouth and I felt so scared. And when I finally said those words, after several minutes of just staring at him, when I finally said, I love you, I felt so much worse. I felt even more terrified. I felt embarrassed. I just wanted to cringe and hide. And his response is he pulled me into a warm hug. He gave me this big smile and he had already said, I love you months prior. And yet I still felt all this embarrassment because I felt so exposed. For so long, I had built up this defense, this wall around me that I was not going to give my heart fully to anyone. This was the first time I'd ever told anyone that I was in love with them before. And it felt like that wall was suddenly crashing down. Love, intimacy, and vulnerability are so closely linked. Love requires us to be vulnerable. It requires us to strip down whatever walls or defenses, whatever layers that we have built up. We're in this Bible reading plan uh, right now. And two weeks ago, we read through the book, The Song of Solomon, a beautiful book, rich and filled with so much symbolism. And so just, just there's so much in there. And there's so many different interpretations. Is it an allegory? Is it an actual love story? Is it about King Solomon? Is it about different characters? Is there two characters? Is there three characters? There's just so many different theories and interpretations, and we're not even going to go into them. But I think what we can agree on is that Song of Solomon is about love. And I think many can agree that we see a love story between a man and woman. I think many can agree that we can, from this, understand some of the love that God has for his people. I think we can also agree that this gives us a glimpse of what it looks like to be pursued and to pursue love. Now, this book makes a lot of people uncomfortable. It's not often preached on the pulpit. It's not often studied in, in Bible studies. It's not often, you know, read out loud. And I can't help but wonder, what is it about intimacy and love and passion that when placed in a righteous, holy context that we become so uncomfortable? What has become so corrupted in our view of 
you know, whether it's the language of the human body and the form, whether it's the language of yearning and longing and passion, how has that become so corrupted that even biblical scholars look at this book and argue whether it even belongs in the Bible? Like what has happened that what God had originally created and ordained has has become something that we cannot in our mind even put together in a Christian context, in a spiritual context, in a biblical context. I believe it's because from the very beginning of time, because love and vulnerability are so closely linked, that vulnerability has been attacked and has been corrupted by the enemy. In the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2, 25, we see that the very first man and woman, Adam and Eve, they walked in the coolness of day with God. They were naked and they were unashamed. And so soon after that, the, the enemy comes in and he says to them, hey, you know, you could be a little bit better. Maybe the way that you are right now, it's not so good. Why don't you eat this fruit? And as they ate that fruit, it says in chapter 3, 7 and 8 that they ate the fruit. They saw their nakedness. They felt the shame. They created, they, they sewed fig leaves together, they put on clothes, and they heard God calling them in the coolness of day, the way that he had walked with them before, and they hid. That they no longer felt comfortable being fully who they are, being fully vulnerable, being fully exposed before their creator, before the one who loved them more than anything. And so I want to look at love and intimacy and vulnerability today. And like I said, Song of Solomon has so many different interpretations and, um, you know, themes. But I want to look at a couple basic themes today that, that seem very poignant in this book. And the first one I want to look at is this theme of pursuit. Now, in this story, in, in Song of Solomon, we see in the very first chapter... We see the bride, we see this love story, um, this character and her very first posture from the very beginning of Song of Solomon, chapter one, she says to her beloved, her lover, she says in verse six, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My brother, my mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. One of the very first things she says in the beginning is, don't look at me. I have not been able to take care. I've been so busy working out in the field and, and the sun has beaten down on me and I have not been able to take care of myself. Please don't even look at me. Her very first posture is hiding, of is layers of don't look at me. I, I don't want to be seen. I'm not worthy of being seen. But we see his pursuit so immediately that he responds in verse 8. And what I would imagine, I think any woman could say, whoa, that's got to be one of the best things you could possibly hear if you tell someone, don't look at me because I feel I'm pretty. He says, if you do not know, oh, most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. Okay, so maybe some of this language, it, it might, we might hear it and be like, I don't know if that's the most romantic thing, but what he's doing is he's finding so many different beautiful metaphors to compare her beauty. 
ultimately he's she says don't look at me ah i don't think i'm pretty and he's like you are the most beautiful woman i've ever seen and it's not just a one and done thing this pursuit continues on he doesn't just pursue her in the very beginning in the first couple buns of their dating we see it continue on and on and in chapter four he continues on with more language about how much he loves her and how beautiful she is chapter four verse one behold you are beautiful my love behold you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. And chapter 4 goes on and on and on, and he's just comparing her beauty to all these different things. Again, so much symbolism in there, but he's just using so many different references to just say oh my goodness you are so beautiful because pursuing doesn't stop after the honeymoon phase it's not about just the one and done it it's this love and intimacy requires constant pursuing i remember um my our first official date with my husband, he took me at this really nice restaurant, one of the nicest restaurants I've ever been at. So nice that I was so self-conscious the whole time. I was like looking at the forks and that I was like, how is a menu only one page? I need menus that are 15 pages. And I didn't know how to order. And I was just very self-conscious the whole time. I finally told him, I said, "This no one's ever taken me to a place like this before. And his response was that it made him sad that I had not yet been pursued in a way that he felt I was worthy of being pursued. But he didn't just stop there on our first date. In fact, just, you know, 30 minutes ago, as I had been trying to record this message and work with, with my camera, um, he handmade me a, a camera phone stand with a cardboard box and a knife, and he even was able to just MacGyver it to get a charger in there and everything because the pursuit continues on. We are about to celebrate nine years of marriage and it's still going. It still requires the effort to show love in different ways. Now she, her response in the very beginning was hiding. The theme of hiding because don't look at me. I don't wanna be looked at. I'm not good enough to be looked at. But in chapter four, oh, I'm sorry, in chapter five, we see that she continues to hide for another reason. He says in verse one, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride, I gathered my myrrh with my spice, I ate my honeycomb with my honey, I drank my wine with my milk. And the friends say, eat friends, drink and be drunk with love. And she responds and says, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. He says, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. And she says, I had put off my garment. How could I put it on again? I bathed my feet. How could I soil them? You know, it's whether this is a dream, whether this is really happening, He's knocking on her door. He's like, hey, I'm here, come, come meet with me. And she's like, oh, but I just, I just showered. I just put on my PJs. I just got into bed, really, I'm tired. We see her hiding again, this time not out of shame or, or not out of not feeling good enough, but just, she's tired. I think we all know that love requires energy 
and effort. It requires us to get up again and again and again, even when we feel tired. And it requires us that if we are going to give ourselves fully to being pursued, it requires us to pursue back. Because what happens next is in verse five, I arose to open my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. She decides to get up. She decides to respond to her, his pursuing, and she decides to go and pursue him back. And as she grabs that door, perfume is all over that door, and her hands start dripping with that perfume. I believe that Song of Solomon, like I said, love story between a man and a woman, but we also see glimpses of the love story of God and his people. Whether, whether King Solomon realized it or not, I believe that this is a prophetic look into Jesus. And before he was betrayed, before he was arrested, he was anointed with perfume and the fragrance of that perfume filled the room. And then he left. After he was anointed, he was crucified, dead, and buried. And he was gone. Now, yes, he is resurrected, but I believe that this image of this perfume and and, and then the, the disappearing gives us a glimpse. And what happens after that, in verse 7, the watchmen found me as, as they went about in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil. Those watchmen of the walls, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. That now the bride is responding to his pursuit and she now is pursuing him back and she's looking for him throughout the city. And for whatever reason, the city guards start attacking her. And again, whether it's a dream or whether something happened and, and they feel the need to attack her, her response, her immediate response to this is to shout out to the people around her, the daughters of Jerusalem. Hey, have you seen him? If you see him, tell him that I am sick with love. And they ask her, what, what is so special about him? And she goes on and on and on to just describe how wonderful he is. Imagine encountering a love so magnificent, so deep, so rich, that regardless of whatever trials come your way, that your response is, oh, but I love him. But my heart aches with love. Jesus says that it's a narrow road. But imagine knowing the love of God so deeply that you willingly pursue that road to proclaim your love for him. When I first started doing ministry, when I start, first um, went into ministry, I did it out of shame. I did it as one of my own defenses, my own layers to try to prove, to try to earn, to try to uh, apologize to God for who I was and for what I've done. And it wasn't until years after of doing these tasks and trying so hard to prove myself and trying so hard to, to feel love and, and to prove myself. And I finally experienced the deep, rich, passionate, intimate, jealous love of God. And when I experienced that love, that's, when I began preaching. That's when my ministry became, hey, 
anyone, everyone, anywhere I went, have you seen the one that I love? Do you know this man, Jesus? If you see him, if you know him, if you meet him, I am aching with love for him. Imagine knowing the love of God so intimately that whatever trials come your way, your first immediate response to any trial is, but I love him and I ache with love for him. That love is so passionate, so holy, so intimate. And he, the lover, the beloved in this, he responds and he describes it in eight, chapter eight, verse six. And he says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. That this love that they have is so strong, it's so powerful that they could compare it to as strong as death in the grave. Well, we are to see that the love of Jesus is so strong, so powerful, so intimate, that it's stronger than death in the grave. That nothing on earth, no chains, nothing could hold back the love of God. That no waters, no floods could hold it back. That for a rich man to climb a tree and say, hey, I'm going to give up my, the wealth of my house. I'm going to give half of my riches to the poor. It's nothing compared to the love of God. And he invites us to put the seal of love upon our hearts, the seal of the Holy Spirit. And this seal, the, the symbol here can often be looked at as either like the signet ring of a king or the seal marked on a letter, that wax seal. Either way, both seals represent who you're coming from, who you represent, who you're with. But the seal of the Holy Spirit would be upon us that anyone, everyone, as we go about in the world and just proclaim to everyone, hey, have you seen the one that I love, that I'm looking for? I'm aching with love. That they would see that seal and they would say, see and recognize that we come from him, that we represent him, that we represent the king. To know this love so deeply, so intimately requires us to come before him fully who we are, exposed, vulnerable, raw, not hiding, not masking, to be who we are, to know who we are. This past summer, last summer, our summer camp theme was the incredible race. And that incredible race was the human race. And we talked about how every single person was made in the image of God. And because of that, we focused on one of these verses throughout the week, Psalm 139, verse 14. A very famous verse that says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Do you know what it means to be fearfully and wonderfully made? It's not just poetic language. To know that you are made in the image of God, the very image of God, that fear strikes your heart, wonder strikes your heart and your very own reflection because it's the image of God that you would not hide it. Um, you would not hide that candle under a cup, under a bowl. You would not be veiled, that you would release who you are fully, not putting on layers, not putting on fig leaves. The very concept of that would fill your heart with fear, 
because you know that that is hiding the beauty of the image of God. That that image, that that core of who you are is so passionately loved by God. And when we recognize that, when we understand that, it shifts not only how we view ourselves, it shifts not only this love story and this pursuit of us and this pursuit that we go on, but it shifts the way that we view others. That we will recognize that our brothers and sisters, our neighbors, our friends are made in the image of God. That our hearts would be filled with fear and wonder when we gaze upon them. and We would never want them to hide. We would never want them to feel shamed. So right now we have friends, we have brothers and sisters that are hurting right now. If we know this intimate love of God, if we know this, this zealous love of God, if we know the way that he loves us so deeply, and if we know who we are in him, our worth, our value, it will not be, it would be so easy for us to stand with our friends who are hurting, to stand alongside them, to hurt with them, to not get defensive, to not say that we need to focus on ourselves. No, we would be able to look at them. And if anyone looks at them as not fearfully and wonderfully made, that we would do whatever we can to shift that. That when we know this intimate love story so personally, it shifts our relationship with God. It shifts our relationship with ourselves. It shifts our relationship with others. Do you know that love? Do you know that pursuit of God in your life? Do you know what it looks like to pursue God back? Do you know the way that he is pursuing those around us? And if you don't, Please take time to start stripping the walls and the layers off, the fig leaves that you have on, the walls, your defenses, to remove them and to allow yourself to be loved for who you are and to no longer say, hey, don't look at me because it's not good. But to come exposed, vulnerable, raw, to know that you're fearfully, wonderfully made in the image of God and it is so deeply loved. When I was growing up, I always looked up to my sis older sister. Many of you know her. She used to attend this church uh, before she moved. Um, she was athletic. She was so smart. She was artistic. She was musical. She just had so many talents and skills, and I admired her for all those things. Um, and in high school, I had a very good friend who one day saw my sister from a distance, and she said, wow, Jen, your sister is so pretty. And I said, yeah, I know. My sister is really pretty, and she's so awesome. My friend said, wow, it's amazing how you two look nothing alike. The sports, the academics, the music, the art, all those things didn't faze me. But that, that's the one that sung. Because to me, that was something that I was just, the way I was born, the way that I looked, that I couldn't change. And so from that moment on, every time I looked in the mirror, my reflection started to become more and more distorted. The girl looking back at me became bigger and bigger and uglier and uglier, more wretched. Until one day when I was in college, I found myself. I almost couldn't even control my own body. My feet just found, the, found its way walking to a pharmacy. 
I found myself dropping $50 at the cash register and purchasing a blue bottle that said that if I took it 30 minutes before each meal, that I would lose weight. The way that I read it was if I took these pills that I could become beautiful, I could be worth something. So I started taking those pills and it hurt. It physically felt like I was getting ripped apart on the inside and you know what I thought to myself? Well, it's worth it. I deserve this pain and maybe after this I'll be worth something. I was home from college for a weekend and my mom was doing the laundry and she pulls out this long thin white paper in one of my pockets and she goes, Jennifer, what is this? I snatched that receipt out of her hands in terror and I said, it's nothing. And I run up the store, the run up the stairs to my room and I slammed the door. And I, it was just shaking in bed as I heard the footsteps up the stairs. And then I heard the knock on the door and my mom just burst in and she asked again. And this time concerned and she said, Jennifer, what is this? And I start rambling and I said, oh, it's nothing. It's no big deal. It's just, I'm just trying to focus on health. It's just some vitamins. And I, and then I just spat out and I said, just come help me lose some weight. Now my four foot 11, 90 pound, very petite mom sat on the ground and she said, Jennifer, come here. And I said, mom, get up. And she said, Jennifer, come here. And she pulled me into her lap. And again, I just saw myself as this big wretched creature. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna break her. And she just puts her hands on my face and she looks at me and she says, you are my child and you are beautiful. My whole life, that is how I always described my mom, beautiful. And so that day, because of who she is, because I was her child, made in her image, because of who she is, because of the way she looked at me, I knew I was worth something. I knew I was worth love. And I knew that I was worth, and I started to know it was worth being pursued into this extravagant love story. Let's pray. So Lord, we just thank you so much for this love story, for the way that you pursue us. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see that we would be filled with fear and wonder, even looking at our reflection, that we would accept that pursuit, that invitation to this love story, to encounter the deep, rich, passionate, jealous, intimate love of God that it would change and shift everything, that we can't help but then just proclaim, declare all around us that we ache with love for you. And may it change the way that we view others, may it change the way that we care for others, may it change the way that we care for ourselves. Lord, I pray you would pour out your extravagant love upon your people today. And for anyone in, in which the lies are already creeping in and saying, but not me. No, not me. I still need this layer. I still need this mask. I still need to wear this hat. Help them to hear your voice above all that. That you love them fully who they are. That you invite them to walk in the coolness of day, unashamed with you. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.